0: The text for our sermon this morning, is Job chapter 16, and we'll read verses 19 through 21. Surely even now my witness is in heaven, and my evidence is on high. My friends score me, my, eye, my eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. Well, at this time, we'll call the kids to the front for the children's sermon. Now, in the Bible verses that we just read, Job tells us about God's way of salvation. These verses teach us the way that sinners can be forgiven and given eternal life in heaven. And there are three things that these verses tell us about God's way of salvation. The first thing that these verses teach us is that God always punishes sin. No sin ever committed is left without punishment. One of the biggest mistakes that people make is that when they think that God, when they, we say that God forgives our sins, they think that He says, Hey, don't worry about it. It's okay. I'll let you get away with it. But that is not how forgiveness works. You see, God is just. And that means that God always, always, always punishes sin. No one gets to cheat, no one gets away with sin well, that's really bad news for us because we are all sinners. It's not good news to find out that God hasn't forgotten about sins you committed three or four years ago that you don't remember anymore. The second thing our verses teach us is just how impossible it is for us to be saved. Unless God makes a way for us, we can never, never be saved. God is just. That means he never breaks the rules. He never bends the rules. He never lets anyone get away with breaking the rules. Now, no one likes to be punished, but if God did not punish every sin, that would make him unfair. It would be unfair because some people would get away with sins and others would get punished for them. God hates all sin, and so he punishes all sins always. God will only forgive sins if the penalty for the sin has been paid. And that's the third thing that our verses teach us. God has made a way for us to be saved. And that way is that we must find someone who can keep God's law perfectly for us and also be punished for our sins. Now, let me ask you a question. If someone came to you and said, Hey, will you do my chores for me? And also, will you let yourself get grounded or spanked for me because I didn't do my chores? You'd tell that person he's crazy. You might do a friend's chores just as a favor because he's your friend, but you aren't taking discipline for him. You don't like getting in trouble for your own disobedience. You sure ain't getting in trouble for somebody else's. So there's the solution. We can be saved if someone is willing to obey God perfectly in our name, and also be punished for all our sin. Now, can you think of anyone who would do that for you? Would anyone obey God perfectly for you and also take the punishment for all your sins? That's why the message of the Bible is called the gospel. That word gospel comes from a very, very old English word which means good news. You remember how long, long ago, before Jesus came, God's people used used to sacrifice lambs for their sins. God gave sacrifice to his people as a way of learning the gospel, the good news. Though they had disobeyed God and though they deserved to be punished with death for their sins, God gave them lambs to die in their place. When God's people offered these lambs, they were showing God's good news. One day, Jesus would come, He would perfectly obey God's law for His people, and He would die for them on the cross. He would be punished for them. In the Bible book of Romans, we learn that someone might be willing to suffer to help a really good person, but Jesus suffered and died to save us when we were not good people but sinners when we were God's enemies that's why the bible's message is called good news and this is what job is saying in the bible verses that we read a few minutes ago he is saying that he has someone to speak for God to speak to God for him and sh- who shows to God his own obedience and righteousness and says i did this for job Jesus is in heaven right now, showing to God the Father His life of perfect obedience and His death for our sins, and He says, I did this for those people right there. After we pray, you can return to your seat. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. O dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it until we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. The past three sermons haven't been easy or fun to preach. Contrary to my demeanor in the pulpit, that sermon two weeks ago on total depravity was as painful for me to preach as it was for you to hear. I don't get any pleasure out of proclaiming the awful fact of our sinfulness and depravity. Look it, I'm human too. I know how unpleasant it is to be told of my sinfulness. Nevertheless, I don't and I won't avoid these subjects because I'm merely a herald. The message isn't mine, it's God's. I'd be a worthless messenger if I decided it was my prerogative to Decide which of my king's messages should be proclaimed and which should be suppressed. Truth is only suppressed in unrighteousness, as Romans 1.18 tells us. As bad as our sinfulness is, God's grace in Christ is greater. The 17th century preacher Richard Sibbs wrote, There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Our catechism paints a bleak picture of our sinfulness and darkness that can be felt from Lord's Days 2 through 4. But God's grace is proclaimed from Lord's Days 5 through 31. That's three Lord's Days of really, really bad news. 27 Lord's Days of grace and mercy. Well, this is something that I have already said, and I'm going to repeat throughout this series. The knowledge of God which Job possessed was equal to whatever we find in Genesis 1 through 10. Now, I don't mean that he had a little Bible with only Genesis 1 through 10. I mean that everything recorded in Genesis 1 through 10 was known to him, was known to the patriarchs, and they passed it on to their children. Job lived alongside Shem and his father Noah. Noah's father Lamech lived alongside Adam for about a hundred years. So when Job talked with Noah, he'd be speaking to an eyewitness of the flood, someone whose dad knew Adam, who would have faithfully passed on the account of his creation, his fall, and the great gospel promise of Genesis 3.15. Adam and his descendants declared their faith in that promise by the names which they gave their sons. Their genealogy proclaims the gospel. The names of the patriarchs as you may know were formed from Hebrew words, and one way that the knowledge of God's revelation was kept intact was through the reciting of their genealogy. The names of Noah's ancestors from Adam to himself are an elucidation of Genesis 3:15 of that promise. When Noah recited his genealogy, he would have been saying this Man is appointed, man is appointed, mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down preaching, his death shall bring the despairing rest. Now, that's a summary of the gospel, of the whole Bible, actually, God's plan of salvation. And that explains why Job and his friends are so theologically intelligent. God does not leave his people without a witness. He always gives them the light of his word. You and I frequently take refuge in the fact that Christ is ascended into heaven clothed in our human nature and is therefore our forerunner there. He is our head and where the head is so shall the body be. Job is proclaiming these same truths when he speaks of his witness in heaven. In our text this morning, Job is declaring his need of a mediator. He knows that he dare not stand before God on his own behalf. He knows that he needs someone who is able to satisfy for him, someone who is able to witness before God on his account, to present to God a life of perfect obedience. Job is simultaneously expressing his need and his confidence that he has such a mediator. He says, oh, that one might plead for a man with God. But he also says, surely even now my witness is in heaven. And so the doctrine of our text, the doctrine of our catechism lesson, is penal substitutionary atonement, stated briefly, our Mediator and Redeemer stands as our substitute. He provides perfect obedience for us, and He pays the penalty for our sins. So the outline of our sermon this morning is as follows. Number one, the requirement. Number two, the impossibility. And number three, the solution. The requirement, first of all. Now, we saw in our catechism lesson That God's inflexible justice requires that satisfaction be made for sin. The answer to question 11 from last week taught us that God's justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God must be punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Now this tells us something which is as important as it is easy to overlook Namely, that every single sin ever committed is dealt with. Now, God and His attributes are one. Now, we don't think about this subject much, and I guess I say that to our shame. Let me give you a crude example. If I were to pick one of you out, and then you were studied to measure your height and weight, Study your features, skin tone, eye color, hair color, shoe size, etc. We'd learn a lot of information that isn't technically essential to who you are. You know, you might have been 5'10 when you were 25, now you're 75, and you're 5'8 on a good day. Your height is not an indispensable attribute of your person. Maybe you had brown hair when you were a kid, and now it's as white as the wind-driven snow. You have not become a completely other person. You're still you. Your weight has fluctuated throughout your lifetime. But none of these changes alters who you are. Those who know you best know that you are still you. Well, God and His attributes are not like that. God is His attributes. The justice of God is God. The power of God is God. There is a qualitative difference between saying, Bill is just and God is just. Bill can cease being just without ceasing to be Bill, but God cannot cease being just without ceasing to be God. And therefore, in agreement with his character, God will not let anything slide. Any sin committed against his most high majesty must be punished. There are people who have sinned against you who've never apologized, Maybe they're oblivious to their sin. Maybe it was never a big deal to them. At any rate, you've eventually accepted the fact that an apology is not forthcoming, and so you preemptively forgive them and go on as if nothing had ever happened. And we think of this quality as magnanimous, as charitable and noble, holding a person's guilt against them forever. We think of as small-minded and petty. Now, in one sense, that's how it should be. And that's because... The evil, the true evil of every sin, consists in its guilt against God. When I sin against my neighbor, the reason that act is a sin is because God has forbidden it. The fact that my neighbor was harmed is secondary to the fact that I have flouted God's authority. Likewise, when my neighbor sins against me, the great evil of his sin is that it is against God. Though I may regrettably be harmed, that evil pales in comparison to the evil that was committed against the Most High Majesty of God. Now, rigorous justice feels petty to us. We secretly feel that an inflexible application of justice is unreasonable, if not unjust. We're usually fine with the judge throwing the book at someone whose crime is against us, and we just don't want the book thrown at us. Because man by nature is not holy, he does not see the beauty of holiness. And consequently, he cannot love holiness as a divine attribute. God is infinitely more powerful, more excellent, more glorious, and more majestic than any mere creature. Even than the greatest king. And therefore, sins against him are more evil than those sins committed against creatures. Simply because of who he is. I mean, if you sin against me, you've only sinned against a sinner. But if you sin against God, you've affronted the eternal sovereign of heaven and earth. And that explains why, though it may be noble for me to overlook sins against myself, it wouldn't be noble of God to do so. It would be the height of injustice. No sin evades God's notice. No sin slips His memory. God has inerrantly and precise, in precise and comprehensive detail recorded every act ever committed by a son or daughter of Adam. And all these acts must be accounted for. The guilt of every sin must be, will be answered for. And either every sin is either reckoned to the sinner's account, for which he must be eternally damned, or it is atoned for by the death of Christ. No sin, be it ever so small and insignificant, by our reckoning has gone unnoticed. God has seen and recorded them all. God must punish sin. That is His nature. He cannot be the thrice holy Jehovah if He doesn't punish sin. That is non-negotiable. Mercy operates on a principle of justice. The sin must be atoned for. And the word which Scripture uses is satisfaction. God's justice requires satisfaction. Forgiveness is granted only to those for whom satisfaction has been made. And that brings us to our second point the impossibility. Now, this Lord's Day catechism lesson is the lead in to the good news, but it isn't good news yet. In fact, it's worse than the bad news. The bad news is God requires perfect obedience to his law, and you can't do it. Not only can you not obey God perfectly, your nature is ruined. You hate God and His perfect law. Not only do you not obey, you can't, and the impossibility is your fault. You can't see or walk because you've gouged your own eyes out and hacked off your own legs, and you're angry that God commands you to see His righteous commands and to walk in them. And then today's catechism uh, lesson comes along and says, hey, there's a way to be restored to God's favor, and you say, great, what is it? And the instructor replies, satisfaction must be made to God for you. And this satisfaction consists of rendering perfect obedience to God's law. Great. That's what we already know I can't do. And not only that, payment for your guilt must also be rendered to God. You thought, I'm a sinner was bad news. This is even badder news. You were born in the hole. You started out in sin. Rendering perfect obedience was already out of the question. By the time you became self-aware, you'd already committed more sins than there is sand on the seashore. And punishing you for your sins won't accomplish what is required. Punishment is not meritorious. You've never heard of someone being considered a good person because he got a lot of spankings when he was a kid. Oh, he's a really good guy. He got suspended from school all the time when we were kids. Punishment is merely a sanction for violating the law. It's not meritorious. But not only that, but getting punished doesn't make up for what was lost. If God damns me to eternal hell, I still have not given Him the perfect obedience that I owe Him. If I suffer damnation in hell for a billion years, I'm no closer to rendering perfect obedience than when I was first cast in. Salvation consists of more than having the guilt of my sin dealt with, but neither does it consist of less than that. That is what Job is acknowledging in our text. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. He understands that he needs someone to undertake for him and do for him what he can't do for himself. Now, this is an incredibly astute observation. Job understands that he needs one to stand in his place. He needs a substitute. Now, Job learned this doctrine from the patriarchs going back to Adam. God killed lambs in Adam and Eve's place so that they might live. The guilt of their sin was reckoned to the lambs. The lambs died for them, and the lamb's skin, which represented its innocence, was provided to them as covering for their shame. Now we're going to take a step back because we won't appreciate the greatness of the solution without knowing the greatness of the need. Now the catechism has spoken of the most high majesty of God. So we're going to try to stare into this unapproachable light. The gravity and evil of sin can never be properly appreciated without understanding whom it is against. A rock thrown through your window is going to draw forth a lesser penalty than a rock thrown through the governor's mansion window. And a rock thrown through the White House window will merit even greater retribution. The higher the station of the one sinned against, the greater the penalty. We all know that instinctively. But the evil of every sin is that it is against God. And God is not a mere creature, God isn't a piddly king. He's the sovereign creator, ruler, and judge of all creation. God is eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, immutable, infinite, almighty, perfectly wise, just, good, and the fountain of all good, as our Belgic Confession declares. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question four, describes God as, quote, a spirit, (coughs) excuse me, a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, I want to unpack that for a minute. God is infinite in His being. God is infinite in His wisdom. God is infinite in His power. God is infinite in His holiness. God is infinite in His justice. God is infinite in His goodness. God is infinite in His truth. God is eternal in His being. God is eternal in His wisdom. God is eternal in His power. God is eternal in His holiness. God is eternal in His justice. God is eternal in His goodness. God is eternal in His truth. God is unchangeable in His being. God is unchangeable in His wisdom. God is unchangeable in His power. God is unchangeable in His holiness. God is unchangeable in His justice. God is unchangeable in His goodness. And God is unchangeable in His truth. Now, I realize that this is very thin air for some of us. We are not accustomed to thinking about God's glorious perfections. It's hard to admire perfect wisdom and infinite holiness. We're better at admiring hairstyles or yards per carry. It's quite the task for us. To love and admire inexorable justice, inflexible righteousness, and blindingly bright holiness. In a question and answer segment at a Bible conference one time, R.C. Sproul was asked, Since God is slow to anger and patient, Why then, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? And Sproul replied, This creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God after that God had said, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And instead of dying that day, he lived another day and he was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace. And though he had the consequences of the curse applied to him for quite some time, the worst curse would come upon the one who had seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? And then Sprawl exclaimed, What's wrong with you people? This is what's wrong with the church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. Beloved, we must get a real sense of God's holiness and majesty. That even the backside of the desert becomes holy ground where we must take off our shoes when God's presence is there. That angels shield their faces before His throne. That before Jehovah's majesty, the nations are a drop in a bucket. Touching the Almighty, we cannot find Him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. Meanwhile, we are a mist that rises and fades away like dust that is so insignificant in weight that it doesn't affect the accuracy of the scales. We're like grass that, is, that today grows and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. We only exist because God has willed it. He has personally decreed the existence of every single person who has ever lived and will ever live. We are mere creatures of the dust. Our breath is in His hand, and without His will, we cannot so much as move. And, that, and when we sin... That is who we are defying. That is who we are daring to punish us. That is who we are challenging to do his worst. We will never appreciate the true gravity of sin until we see who it is that we are sinning against. And once we come to grips with this, we'll instinctively get what Job is saying here. You need a special kind of mediator to plead to God on your behalf. Neither you nor any mere creature is going to cut it. God is not a man that any ordinary Joe can approach on equal footing and plead his neighbor's case. No one is on equal footing with God. And that leads us to our third point the solution. Now, our catechism has taught us the following. Number one, satisfaction must be made to God's justice. We could never make this satisfaction because we're sinners, and A, sin is what the satisfaction is for, and B, we daily increase our debt of sin. The idea that I can satisfy for my own sins is more ludicrous than saying that I could slap the defibrillator on my chest while I'm in cardiac arrest. And secondly, Only a fellow man can satisfy for man's sin because God is just. God would never exact the penalty for man's sins from any other creature. More than that, no mere creature could bear the burden of God's eternal wrath. God's wrath against sin is eternal. That's one of the reasons why the punishment in hell is eternal. God will never cease to hate sin. He's so unspeakably holy that a billion years of sinners' torments in hell will not lessen his hatred of sin one iota. That kind of holiness is very hard for us to imagine. And it's even harder to admire as a thing of moral beauty. Forgiveness for sin is not given in violation of sin. God's justice requires that sin be punished. So when God forgives the sins of His people, He doesn't violate the principle of His justice. Forgiveness is given if satisfaction has been made to God's justice. The infinite and eternal hatred of God against sin has to have been satisfied. You are the one on whom it should justly be poured, and you can't satisfy for yourself. You're the the one in need. A mediator can satisfy for you, but that satisfaction must be of a very, very specific sort. It must be by way of penal substitution. A substitute who is in every way your equal, except that he must be sinless, must bear the eternal wrath of God against your sins. Look, none of us want to bear the consequences of our own sins. We sure aren't going to bear the consequences of someone else's. But that's what we need. We need a real righteous man to bear the full fury of God's infinite hatred of sin manifested in eternal hellfire. And only then can God's justice be satisfied. This substitute must be a true man. He must be one of us in order to stand before God on our behalf. He must be perfectly righteous. He can't be a sinner if that's who he's representing as a surety. And most importantly of all, he must be more powerful than any creature, which means that he must be God. I mean, all that exists is God and his creatures. If the mediator must be greater than all creatures, well, then he must be God. The reason why each one of these things must be, well, that'll be our lesson for next Sunday. When Job says in verse 19, surely even now my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high, he is saying that the righteousness which answers for him in heaven is not his own righteousness here on earth. He who sits in evidence of Job's right standing is on high. Job is telling us that we need a witness in heaven. We need someone who has evidence of righteousness, evidence of a perfectly sinless life of faultless obedience, which he can present to God in heaven. We need someone who is God's equal, who can plead with God the way a man can plead with his fellow man. We need a mediator and deliverer who is very man and also very God. Beloved, do we believe, do we agree with the doctrine that maintains the righteousness of God and demands full satisfaction from you and me even to the last penny? The church wavers on its foundation if even the least bit is subtracted from this doctrine and yet everywhere this doctrine is pushed into the background. Not only do Arminians and Unitarians deny it, but even ostensibly Reformed folk Push the the just demand of obedience to God's law into the background while placing the so-called command of the gospel to believe and be converted into the foreground. But what is the gospel without man's state of sin and misery? God's justice must be perfectly satisfied. The gospel tells us by whom and in what manner that satisfaction was given for God's elect. Oh, that we would take instruction from the Word of God so clearly presented in the Catechism. God wills salvation in the way of penal substitutionary atonement. Not arbitrarily, but because of the perfection of His divine being. That His justice may be perfectly satisfied. And we must not give up even the least bit of that demand. May God keep His church from falling away to the Unitarians who make a mockery of God's just demand, or to the Arminians who rob God of His honor, or to the Papists who glory in their own works. Let us pray.